the one and only Mr. Howard Bloom, who I was trying to think of a, a way to describe you. And I know that there are other descriptions for you, but I wanted something catchy. And the one thing I could conclude after listening to The God Problem was, you're the moonwalking Stephen Hawking. And that's... <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful phrase. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, what? what is it? Because it's a high... For everyone that hasn't listened to you before, please introduce yourself because you are up there with Charlie Duke who walked on the moon. You have one of the most fantastic lives of anyone I've ever interviewed. So please introduce yourself for all the new listeners before I start rambling like an idiot. Um, this, is, this is very tricky. I'm going to, you know, I'll sound like the world's biggest narcissist. No, I'm asking you to. I'm asking you to. Okay, so I'm the author of seven books. I appear on 545 radio stations every Wednesday night at 106 doing a news commentary. Um, I'm uh, I, I basically my base is in science. So I've been published in uh, peer reviewed journals or given talks at scholarly conferences in 12 different scientific fields, ranging from quantum physics and cosmology to evolutionary biology, uh, neuroscience, uh, information science, even astronautics. Um, but once upon a time as a little field expedition into the forces of history, I went into something I knew absolutely nothing about popular culture and founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry and just threw away all of the cliches of the field that didn't make sense from a scientific point of view and replaced them with formulae that did work and that worked on behalf of the human heart, on behalf of the honesty of the human spirit. Um, because that's what music is really all about, soul. It's an exchange of soul. And so I worked with, see if we've heard of any of these people, with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, uh, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, ZZ Top, Joan Jett, Chaka Khan, etc. It just... And then went back to my science. And then... Oh, and, and, and Channel 4 TV, bless their souls said that Howard Bloom is the uh, Charles Darwin, Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, um, and they threw in a bunch of others of the 21st century. So, and Gear Magazine said Howard Bloom may just be the next Stephen Hawking, except he's not just interested in the physical universe, he's interested in the human soul. So, that's, that's a rough approximation of who or what I am. I'm the founder of a field called Omnology, and omnology is a field for the promiscuously curious, for the carnivorously curious, for people who are, you know, you're in your sophomore year of college, your dad sits you down and says, okay, you're interested in our history, you're interested in neuroscience, and you're interested in film, pick one. Until you're either an art historian, a neurobiologist, or a filmmaker, you're nothing. And uh, omnology is there so that you can raise your middle finger to dad and say, fuck you, dad, I have three different curiosities. Those are my passions. If I go out following my passions and any new ones that occur and dropping ones that get old and stale for me, when I hit 40 and all my friends are having a midlife crisis and wondering why they're on this planet to begin with, and if they're women, they're planning elaborate divorces so they can finally find themselves, and if they're men, they're buying little red sports cars and cheating on their wives, picking up blondes. So when they have no idea of why they are on this planet, I will just be coming in from the wilderness of my multiple curiosities with my first answers, my first contributions to the big picture of the way things work. So while my friends will feel that they're at the end of their lives, I will know that I'm at the beginning of mine. 
That's omnology. So I'm an omnologist. That's beautiful. That's you're very much you're very much like and you know rest in peace. It's been almost two years. You're very much like Ramdas. You're a different take on Ramdas. Well, it's curious. Our paths crossed at one point in order to get in to popular culture, which, as I said, I knew nothing about. I had no credentials. I co-founded a commercial art studio. And one of my artists was just brilliant, and he wanted to do a book called Universe. So I took it to a, a new publishing company called Crown, and, um, and Crown published it. And we were their second book. Their first book was Be Here Now mm-hmm. by Ram Das. That was, holy shit, so you had a hand in that. Well, I didn't have a hand in it, but we passed, we, we crossed paths. Sure, sure. But, I mean, to me, it's, and I've, I've said this before, is, you know, as the podcast, you know, God bless, as it gets bigger, and I have the ability to kind of get bigger and bigger guests, you know, when I want to talk about, you know, there's four men in the world alive who walked on the moon. I've had one of them on here, and it's like... Which one? Charlie Duke, the tenth or youngest man to ever walk on the moon. He's been on here three right. times. He's he's Wow. He's, he's a beautiful soul and i get to talk to him about that uh dale comstock the youngest ever member of delta force he was in the cia for nine years he was in the same division that inspired the creation of uh james bond so Uh i get to talk to him when i want to talk when the when that uh president got killed a couple months ago or weeks ago by mercenaries yeah i had him on i was like hey what uh, I had on Dr. Peter McCullough two days ago, the most published cardiorenal physician in the world, to talk about heart problems. Right. And I always ask them to introduce themselves at the beginning because right. otherwise it's just me sitting here yelling with a flag and a camera, right? right? So you're not a narcissist because today I want to talk about I want to talk about your book and you need that introduction. And it's it's very humble of you to you don't come on here and start yelling that and say oh tommy i don't want to be a narcissist but i asked you to you are the moonwalking stephen hawking and that is who you are you have the most in like you said if you looked at your resume it, it looks like something a little kid i'm a firefighter astronaut president but that's what you've done and so because i've already burned 10 minutes just fanboying which i've done the last two times let's pivot into your book the god problem which everybody listening you can get it on kindle and you can get your phone to read it to you with the first two books we went over, How I Accidentally Started the Sixties, and then the one over your shoulder, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, you talked, you know, you talked about your interest in science, and there was you could see a little I don't know what word am I looking for. You could see kind of like slivers breaking through. Like my older brother lived in South America for like a year or two. And every once in a while you can see his like fluent language come through and you're like, Oh yeah, you actually did that. You could see right. your uh, you could see your your genius and literally and figuratively, but you could see your your appreciation and knowledge of science break through. But those books were mostly it was still more so about the pop culture, that world you jumped right. into. The God problem to me is like it's like if Michael Jordan said, you know, I've been dabbling with the ukulele. And he fi- and he finally and he finally put the basketball down and he's like, "You've seen my six championship rings. You know I can dunk from the free throw line. Let me drop a sick beat." And he just destroys the ukulele. To me, the God problem was is it was like, "All right, I've told you before that I've you know that I'm interested in all these fields." And to me, it was the most beautiful flex to use a modern term, a most beautiful flex of your knowledge and something that 
I had a hard time keeping up with. I actually had to slow down the pace at which I listened to it. But for everybody listening, what you, if I can get this correctly, what you, this, what you summarized, your theme throughout the book is that there are, there are things going on in the quantum world and in the universal world that are so absurd. They're, like Dr. Manhattan says in uh, the book, you know, The Watchmen, I've seen events so infinitesimal they can hardly be have said to happen at all. I've walked on the surface of the sun. I've seen oxygen spontaneously turn into gold. You talk about things in here that you can break it down into science and, you know, at the beginning of the universe. And you can only do this and this can only happen once and then it happens. And it's, well, lightning can't strike twice and then it happens. And then this, everything comes together to where it almost is, unlike, you know, Stephen Hawking's, or not, excuse, yeah, Richard Dawkins, the God delusion, yours come, the God problem really is, is like, on one hand, it's like, you know, where, it, you know, where is the evidence? The evidence, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary uh, evidence. But on the other hand, it really is the God problem. It's for lack of a more uh, eloquent term, there's some shit happening that you kind of have to throw your hands in the air and be like, okay, but what the fuck is that? Right. Yeah. So, is that is that a correct is that a correct summary? Yeah, it's a correct assumption. Okay. When I was ten, the thing that drew me into science was having a book in my lap um, that said the first two rules of science are these: the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gave the example of Galileo all wrong, as if he was willing to go to the stake to defend his truth. Not true, but I needed that anyway. The false version, and uh, which is ironic about a rule that's the truth at any price, including the price of your life. <laughs> And the second rule of science is look at yeah. things that are under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. Look at things that you and everyone around you take for granted and then proceed from there. So my task on this planet, so far as I can see it, aside from reaching across 350 years to save the next lost kid the way Galileo saved me across a distance of 350 years, aside from that, my task is to kick science in the ass. My task, because science has been my life, my task is to step outside the way science is traditionally thought out, look for the hidden assumptions that are invisible to all of the people in science, and turn them upside down to start science on a new course, to start science off in the hunt for a whole new big picture of the way this cosmos operates. And the big question underlying the God problem is right there in the subtitle, how a godless cosmos creates. So you're alluding to this scene I put you in where you and I are sitting at a coffee table at the beginning of the universe. And we've been there forever. I mean, we've piled up 38,000 coffee cups by now. You know what's going on. I know what's going on. We know from sheer observation, nothing is going on. And all of a sudden, you, the hopeless visionary, um, turn to me, the cantankerous old fart, the crank, um, and say, see that little spot over there? I predict that any second now, a pinprick infinitely smaller than a pinprick is gonna appear, and it's gonna contain the makings of an entire universe. And I say, Tommy, you gotta be crazy. Nothing comes from nothing, garbage in, garbage out. Add two swatches of nothing and you get more nothing. And that's it. So you're not gonna see a pinprick infinitely smaller than a pinprick come from anywhere. And all of a sudden, that pinprick, infinitely smaller than the pinprick, appears. And it whooshes out at extraordinary speed. And from the point of view of logic, you know, one plus one equals two. Um, not one plus one equals 
infinity. Yeah. Um, and yet one plus one has just equaled infinity. And you've got this giant sheet of space, time, and speed. And then you make another of your wacky asshole predictions. And you say, um, any second now, the way that raindrops precipitate from a cloud of rain, you're going to see this spreading sheet of space, time, and speed precipitate into things. And I say, Tommy, you have got to be crazy. You got it right once. But this is wacko. Again, add space, time, and speed to space, time, and speed. And you just get more space, time, and speed. It's basic Aristotelian logic. Don't you understand it? Garbage in, garbage out. And all of a sudden, whammo, space, time, and speed precipitates into this blizzard of things. Um, and they're quarks and leptons. And, but there's another assumption in science. Um, and it's that if there are going to be an infinite number of things, because of randomness, because of the probability of randomness, they're going to be an infinitely different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Gazillions of things, gazillions of kinds of things. They'll be radically incompatible with each other. So I make that prediction, and whammo, it turns out not to be true. There are only 16 different kinds of quarks, with a gazillion identical copies of each of those 16 things. Now, in science, we think in terms of things, in terms of things what's called stochastically, in terms of random probability that this is a universe of six monkeys and six typewriters, if you leave them alone for infinity, will eventually type out the complete works of Shakespeare. That's supposed to be the way the universe operates. But if that were the way the universe operated, a gazillion things would be a gazillion different kinds of things. And that's not true. What's more, these things are social. So if you sat there predicting that these things are social, they share a common language, they know who to get together with and who to run away from, they kind of complete with an internal little etiquette book, um, manners uh, uh, um, and behaviors. Um, I'm going to tell you, Tommy, this is absolutely nuts. Okay, you got it right about the things. But there's no way these things are going to be able to communicate with each other. Um, and all of a sudden, whammo, the quarks um, find the other quarks they need to flee, and they find the other quarks they need to flock with, and they get together in groups of three, and those groups of three in one form, those groups of three are a proton. In another form, those groups of three are a neutron. And the pro and the neutron is social. Well, Tommy, this is anthropomorphism, saying that a neutron is social. How dare you say a thing like that? Um, well, it turns out that if a neutron doesn't find a buddy, if it doesn't enter a team with a proton, within its first point, 10.6 minutes of existence, whammo, it disintegrates, the ultimate penalty. It loses, it's the death sentence. Um, so all the way along and every step of the way, this cosmos does things that according to standard Aristotelian logic are absolutely impossible. It's a universe where one plus one does not equal two. Um, space, time, and speed plus space, time, and speed does not equal twice as much space, time, and speed. It equals a quark, for God's sakes. And quarks equals social rules. And social rules lead to teams, trios. And, and those things operate in teams, too. All of this is so radically improbable, it's ridiculous. Well, our problem is that about 2,300 years ago, Aristotle, in two pages of his book, The Metaphysics, um, 
Aristotle laid out the complete program of modern science. And he said that if you divide something into its smallest units, you call those units elements. And if you understand the laws that, that govern these elements, you understand everything you need to know. That's called reductionism. Mm -hmm. And we, totally having forgotten that we got this from Aristotle, have used this approach as a fundamental assumption of science ever since. And it's not true. If you understand how a quark operates, that doesn't mean you're going to understand how a human being made of quarks operates. In fact, you're going to get nowhere near understanding how a human being operates um, just by understanding what a quark is and how it, how it functions. So, I mean, the reason we are in search of elementary particles and elementary laws, that word elementary comes from Aristotle. Is saying break things down to their elements. Well, we've done this for 2,300 years. It has yielded fantastic results. And yet it has made us utterly blind to the fact that we don't understand what life is. We don't understand what consciousness is. Well, this is a universe that has produced life and consciousness. So if you don't understand what life and consciousness are and how they fit in the big picture, you don't understand the universe. So when physicists are gabbling on, I mean, they're working at CERN, you know, the mm -hmm. giant atom smasher, um, doing what Aristotle said, breaking things down to their tiniest parts, their particles, um, their elementary particles. Um, and they're claiming that they're after a gut, a grand unified theory. That's lying. Because their grand unified theory will get nowhere near understanding what life and consciousness are. And as I said, if you don't understand life and consciousness, which are products of this universe, you don't understand this universe. So we have a long way to go in science. It's as if we've only invented the first primitive stone tools. And another thing scientists don't recognize, they're working with differential equations. Well, the differential equation is just a tool like the stone tools, like the original Old One Stone Toolkit in Africa. It, it was invented in 1570. Up until then, all math was done with pictures. All math was done with geometry. And yet scientists have the audacity to think that the, uh, that the field equations are going to explain everything in the universe and anything that can't be explained by an equation is not scientific. Well, look, science is about understanding everything you possibly can. It's not about shutting your eyes to everything that your tool doesn't allow you to work on, for God's sakes. I mean, right now, the math that we have is primitive compared to the math that we will have 200 years from now um, if our civilization survives, and in all likelihood it would. I mean, Stephen Wolfram, who's in the God problem, mm -hmm. is actually working with systems where you come up with a bunch of simple rules and then you run those simple rules in a computer to see what's implicit, what kind of a universe is implicit in those simple rules. You run those rules millions and billions of times, and you get whole universes, or at least the equivalent of whole universes on a computer screen. Mm -hmm. um, and Stephen Wolfram claims he's able to unify quantum physics with uh, traditional physics. Um, on, on the basis of these patterns, but they're a new alternative to the math that's always been used. And guess what? Stephen Wolfram's tools are primitive too. And they are not gonna capture the whole picture, but they'll carry us a step forward. Um, we need to invent new tools 
if we're going to understand the mysteries of consciousness, the mysteries of the human spirit, um, and the mysteries of life itself. We have no idea of why uh, a, guy can, a guy who has moved millions, first of all, we don't know how he's moved millions in science, but a guy who's moved millions can be standing on a balcony, um, and his hundred trillion cells are perfectly intact, and they allowed him to have a personality and thoughts and opinions, and all of a sudden a bullet goes through him, and the hundred trillion cells are still there. Mm-hmm. Maybe a hundred thousand of the cells are damaged. That's nothing in a hundred trillion cells. The cells are all there, ready to function. But the guy, Martin Luther King, is gone. He's gone in a flash. What is the difference between him living and him being utterly gone? We do not know. What's the difference between a pile of chemicals um, and a living system? We don't know. Is you know, people, uh, organisms have died by the trillions of trillions since life first first began almost four billion years ago. That's life existing and then disappearing. Do we have any idea of what that existence of life and that disappearance of life is all about? No, not really. We are too busy taking things down to their smallest parts and trying to understand everything in terms of the particles. Sometimes you have to understand things in terms of the whole. If I tried to address you as 100 trillion cells and pay attention to your individual cells, I wouldn't have a clue as to what you really are. I have to address the single emergent property that comes flickering from you like a flame from a charcoal briquette when you soak that briquette in lighter fluid. I have to relate to you, to Tommy Kerrigan, um, who's the summation somehow, or something superior to, above, radically different than just the cells Mm. within you. So if I think that by understanding the cells of you, I'm going to understand Tommy Kerrigan, I'm up against the Martin Luther King problem. The cells can still be there, they can still be functional, but the Martin Luther King is gone. What the hell was the Martin Luther King? What the hell is life? Science is nowhere near these things. So in the God problem, um, I try to, I give you five heresies, five things that go against the assumptions of modern science. Remember that second rule of science. Look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, then proceed from there. Look for the things that are invisible to you, the hidden assumptions. So I'm giving you five hidden assumptions and turning them upside down. And one is Aristotle's assumption that A equals A, which underlies all algebra. And I show you that A doesn't necessarily equal A. So A equals A under some certain circumstances or within certain systems of thought. Um, when you're operating on things in certain ways, and doesn't equal A. For example, the A that you type at 9 in the morning is not the same as the A that you type at 9.01. They're in different times. They're made up of different electrons that are showing themselves to you on your computer screen. There have been who knows how many millions of refreshes that have taken place between the two A's, They are the same if you want to use algebra, and algebra does take you a substantial distance, but they're not really the same. And if you add two things, let's try taking, remember those protons that were made up of the quarks? If you take one of those protons and you put it together with something that's one eighteen hundredth of its size, which, Tommy, that's just profoundly unlikely. It isn't going to happen. 
One is relatively speaking the size of my fist. The other is relatively speaking the size of the Empire State Building. And the idea that these two things could have anything in common, much less communicating with each other, is ridiculous. But if I put one of those Empire State Building size things together with one of those fist size things, turns out <clears throat> they speak a common language. They have an inanimate longing. They have a need to get together and stick together. And when they get together and stick together, then according to Aristotle, if I understand the laws of one, it's called an electron, the little tiny thing. And if I understand the laws of the other, the giant thing, the thing that relatively speaking the size of the Empire State Building, that's a proton, I understand everything I need to know. No, I'm sorry. Put an electron close to a proton, the electron starts circling the proton and creates entirely new properties that are not predictable from the properties of a proton or the properties of electron. It produces the properties we call an atom. It produces the properties we call hydrogen. And these are totally unpredictable from the Aristotelian technique of breaking things down to their smallest parts and understanding the laws of those parts. So we have a universe we do not understand. And until we step outside of our assumptions, which this book helps you do, I hope, um, we're not going to get anywhere. And so Barbara Ehrenreich, who was, <clears throat> was originally in science before she moved into uh, human affairs, um, she's a national magazine award winner or something like that, but she's a tremendously important intellectual on the left. And she says that uh, this book is the beginning of the next 350 years of science. Well, that would be wonderful. But meanwhile, James Burke, who is the creator of the Connection series, which is the TV series that I admire more than any other series I've ever seen in my life. You see one episode, you never see the world around you in the same old way again. And James Burke says, this is the most astonishing cliffhanger he has ever read. So it reads like a detective story, hopefully. And you can't put it down, hopefully. That's my goal. Um, and there are a lot of pe people who have said exactly that. Um, but in the process, it just may change the way you see the universe around you utterly. First and foremost, one day I'm going to create a synthetic drug and I'm going to name it Howard Bloom. Because when I talk, <laughs> when I talk to you, my just it's just they're flying off, and I'm like, I have a limited amount of time, and I can only talk. I'm like, grab the best ideas and put them back down. It's but you know what I would say about your book is it's kind of like um, it's kind of like an advanced military sensor on uh, like a drone, right? To me, it's you can flip it, and you have thermal. You have IR, you have you know X-ray, you have whatever. To me, each of your books I've read, it gives me a little, it's a new, oh, there's thermal. And you look around and all of a sudden the world's blue, but people are red. And then you flip it again and it's IR. And it's like, oh, we, everything's kind of white and the sky is gray. And you do gamma or you do X-ray and it's like, what the hell is that? It's To me, that's what your writing is like, is it kind of, it unlocks something in your own mind and it very much so does make you look on, look at things under your nose like you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. What I wanted to 
what I'm what I just thought of now or just listening to you is and you know it makes me think of things you've written about before right the four minute mile right the uh is right. It, uh what is it the, was it Le, was it Les Paul the, the Roger Bannister yeah. oh, you want to sell that story or I, did we do that last time no, no go ahead with your thoughts oh yeah no no, no, no we've, we've done it before I'm trying to think of the other analogy was it Les Paul with the, all the guitars yeah, with Les Paul with the guitar mm-hmm. and yeah and... yeah yeah we've gone over those before so everybody listening you can go back to a previous episode and find them or just buy the books and listen to them but to me you talking about that and then at the Howard Bloom Institute and then you talking about, right, the next 350 years, save the, a distant soul in the future. It's kind of making this all come together to where and then what with uh, with Wolfram, right, trying to find these equations or equations and problems and simulations that once you add tweak one thing, it develops into a new thing. And then there's still primitive tools. But right. We have to stand on the shoulders of those. To me, it's the four minute mile. You're pushing us forward, but then it's also from the God problem, right? It's the moving of it's the moving of uh, you exist and then you die and you think you're gone, but the thing keeps moving across the screen, right? It's like snake. It's, it's you know the or you know looking at a right like a light show or you know like a not a light show um you you know just like a like a big thing of lights and LEDs, right? And the things move. Yeah, 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 and and it's things move on the screen and you think they're dead but it's like if you play snake on like an old cell phone it's it's the same thing but it exists in one moment of time right. the, the structure moves and it moves forward and then it moves just keeps going of the particles of which it's made so it's the you can't step in the same river twice to me that's kind of what you're doing is it's a mixture of the four minute mile the standing on the shoulders but it's also you're part of something that maybe you can't see maybe i can't see you know, it's you look back and you maybe have Aristotle, maybe have Da Vinci and, you know, maybe have you. And it won't be until we have enough zooming out to where maybe we have over the next, you know, 10 millennia, we can go, oh, there was this thing being built. No one knew what it was, but at the same time, you keep moving, right? No one, no one bird in the flock knows that they're making the shape, yet they are, correct? Right. To me, that's what I get out of your books is you're pushing everything forward, all these feelers. You don't claim to know what's going on. You have no idea what's we're just going to. Hey, we're going to sail to India and then you hit America and you're like, the hell is this? And it's like, all right, well, I guess we're going to establish this place. And then next thing you know, boom, three, four hundred years later, you know, America is on the moon. And it's like no one. No one saw that. Christopher Columbus didn't see that. He was like, hey, women and gold. Yeah, it's 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 insane. And. So to me, that's kind of what your work does. One, it's the military sensor. It allows you to just look at things and, oh, oh, okay, a different light. But then it's also, it feels like you're, you're, you're standing on the shoulders and then you're holding something up. And I read your books and I feel like I'm getting on your shoulders. And I don't entirely know what I'm doing, but to me, it's the four-minute mile. I'm like, well, hold on. If he can do all this, like I'm 30. I'm like, God willing, I still got like 50, 60 years. I'm like, okay, maybe, okay, maybe I can live an insane life. Maybe right. I can, and it's, and who knows? And then in 350 years later, someone goes, oh, okay. And you keep pushing it forward. But to me, and then to pivot again back to your book, The God Problem is, it's almost like you are really investigating the, like the conundrum of synergy, Right, it's all of us working together. That, that's it. Yes, the mystery of synergy. Yes, the synergy that creates something bigger than the parts of which it's made. Yes, yes, and it's you look at all of you look at 
you look at me, you look at Howard Bloom, you look at Bob, and we're all, oh, there's three guys, and there's four guys, and there's a friend group, and enough people, and oh, there's a Thanksgiving dinner, and you know, and there's a party, and then there's a football stadium, but then you zoom out, and it's like, there's a nation, and next thing you know, it's a nation that creates wars, or invents technologies, or does hurricane relief aid, and you're like, no one of us are doing that, yet we are, and... Uh, I mean, look at a civilization, the Chinese yes. civilization has been up and functioning for at least 3,200 years and possibly 5,200 years. And it has retained a collective identity that has, yes, it's grown just the way you grow from childhood to adolescence. Um, But that consistent identity has remained despite the fact that billions of people have cycled through the system and are gone. And the the, uh, Egyptian civilization lasted 5,000 years years, despite the fact that humans lasted an average in those days of 45 years, individual humans. Um, in your, in Tommy Kerrigan right now, um, a, a billion blood cells are dying every minute and being replaced by new ones. And yet your sense of things is that you are retaining a single string of thought or attempting to throughout this entire interview. Well, billions and billions of red blood cells are changing in you utterly, while the cells within you at many levels are changing within you. And yet you are convinced you're the same person. So yes, it's looking for those emergent properties. It's looking for those, again, it goes back to, you know how you take a charcoal briquette, right? Try to light it with a match, nothing happens. but douse the damn thing in lighter fluid and add a match. Now let's do this in an Arist- with using Aristotelian logic. You are taking uh, uh, an inert thing that is soaked, right? You are taking a match, a source basically of warmth, and you're pushing it toward the charcoal briquette. What should happen if you add a soaked lump um, to a source of warmth? warm the soaked lump, right? That's not what happens at all. The thing catches fire. There's a flame three to four inches high. It's astonishing. Where the fuck does it come from? What is it? I mean, it's dancing around. You can see that it's changing every second. And yet, despite the fact that it is dancing around and is insubstantial, you could run your finger through it and take your finger back out again, which you can't do with a solid object like your laptop. Um, despite all of that, it, that dancing thing has an identity. How can you tell? It has an envelope of form. You can see where it stops and the stuff behind it begins, and that envelope dances around, sort of like the sheet on a ghost mm-hmm. um, in a cartoon. Well, what the fuck is that emergent property is what it's called in science. Um What is that thing that is more important than the parts of which it is made? That thing which should have more consequences um, than the things of which it's made. I mean, throw uh, a charcoal briquette at a gas station and nothing's going to happen. Throw uh, a charcoal briquette with a flame at the right puddle in front of a pump in the gas station, you can blow the whole gas station up. Um, so, So what the fuck is that identity of the flame? Um, Well, this universe is all about flame-like identities. When three quarks come together, they create the flame-like identity called a neutron or a proton. 
When a proton gets together with an electron, it creates the flame-like identity called the atom, called hydrogen. When a whole bunch of these atoms get together, they create, there's a music that runs across the surface of the universe. It's called a pressure wave, mm -hmm. like the music running across a cymbal. Um, by a cymbal, I mean the thing you bang yeah, yeah, on. Yeah. Um, right. And what the fuck is that? Because it's changing its identity, its particles, its participants from second to second as it sweeps across the universe. It's another flame-like identity. A galaxy is a flame-like identity. Mm -hmm. um, if you tried to understand it just in terms of its parts, you'd never understand it at all. Why does it swirl in spiral arms? I don't think we really totally understand the answer to that question yet. Um, a part of our galaxies get together in herds, mm -hmm. in galaxy clusters. And the galaxy clusters have an identity, each one. How do we know? Because when two galaxy clusters run up against each other, the bigger one swallows the smaller one. The identity of the smaller one ceases to be, the identity of the bigger one bulks up. A sun is all about flame. So these are all flame-like identities that emerge as realities that are bigger than the sum of their parts, that are so radically different than the sum of their parts that it goggles the mind. So my contention, what I'm trying to get across in this book, is that it's time for us to stop just looking at the elementary particles and start looking at the flames. Because those flames, the flame called Tommy Kerrigan, the flame called Howard Bloom, um, they are rea they are the realities with which this cosmos operates time after time after time after time. And this is a cosmos that's constantly inventing new supersized surprises. And it's time the quark was a supersized surprise. Then the atom was a supersized surprise. Then the galaxy was a supersized surprise. Then the star was a supersized surprise. And the planet was a supersized surprise. And life is the biggest supersized surprise of all. So this is a cosmos that's coughing out supersized surprises on a fairly regular basis. And why did it give birth to us? To help it cough out the next supersized surprise, um, presumably. So I'm trying to give you the big picture. And I'm lucky, Tommy, because when I was a kid, no other kids wanted to have anything to do with me. And my parents didn't want to have anything to do with me e either. And once I read that book about the truth at any price, including the price of your life, the first two rules of science, I took off on a tear. I started reading two books a day, um, science fiction, science, all kinds of stuff. And when I was 12, I realized we need to take the universe and lay it out on a timeline. Start with a big bang. The big bang was very controversial when I was 12 years old, extremely. Um, a lot of people thought the idea was nuts and would die anytime soon. But start with the Big Bang and then lay out every event, the birth of quarks, the birth of atoms, the birth of stars, the birth of galaxies, and the birth of humans, the, the, the birth of the first life forms on this planet. So I've been working on that timeline ever since, and that time, ever since I was 12. And that timeline helps you see the big picture of the cosmos. It helps you see the underlying thread that runs through every discipline you can possibly imagine with the possible exception of sewing and needlework. But even that is in my books, sewing and needlework. So um, 
it helps you see everything. And seeing the big picture is what you get to do when you try to be an omnologist or when you can't help yourself. When you're an omnologist, whether you like it or not, your job is seeing the big picture that emerges when you look through, as you put it, multiple sensors, um, multiple lenses, like the multiple sensors on a drone. Mm-hmm. So that's what my life has been all about. And my job is to pass that on. I used to tell my artists, you don't just owe your audience your songs, you owe your audience your life. And I didn't know what it meant. Tommy, sometimes you know a thing is true and you know how to put it in words, but you don't know what it means. Yeah. You can't put what it means into further words. It took me 20 years being sick in a bed for 15 years to figure out what I meant. And what I didn't understand was my own fucking life, which is a series of random accidents in pursuit of the gods within, in pursuit of that flame-like quality that comes to life when groups form, um, whether they're groups of quarks or they're groups of human beings. Um, that whole thing, you know, tripping from editing a literary magazine that won two National Academy of Poets prizes and starting an art studio, and, uh, and which became leading. I mean, I was on the cover of Art Direction magazine, for God's sakes. I had no training for that. Um, and then uh, editing a rock magazine and being credited with, with founding an entirely new magazine genre, the heavy metal magazine, and then uh, starting my own PR firm and then going back to my science and then being published or giving lectures and scholarly conferences in 12 different scientific fields. All of that is so unlikely that when I had to sit down and write my first biography in 1995, a long time ago, before I had done a lot of these things, it it looked to me like the ravings of a lunatic. It was totally delusional, but it, it just couldn't be as a real life. But you're right. This is a template for others to follow, I hope. And in the same way that Roger Bannister broke the five-minute mile in 1954 and made it possible for others to break the five-minute mile on a regular basis, or four-minute mile on a regular basis, I'm hoping to pull that off with omnology with using as many disciplines as you possibly can in order to get a new big picture or a new view of the big picture and to lay out at least a mystery. That's all I can lay out. These flame-like realities. What the hell are they? How do we deal with them if understanding the elements of which they're made is not enough? And it's not enough. So how do we grab hold of the stuff we can't grab hold of yet? It's... It's um well one I, I I do hope that uh I do hope that in like twenty one fifty there's some there's some lost motherfucker listening to this conversation and it's reaching across time to that person who maybe they'll look back at that point at the at the risk of of not being humble they'll look back at that moment and be like that was the right that was the match to the charcoal of my life and it was like i was listening to this guy named howard bloom he lived 200 years ago and this other guy tommy who's a moron but somehow got in contact with howard bloom and they were just (laughs) talking about x y and z and man that led to and but then that goes on and it goes on one thing that before i forget it is one i think there's two things that above all else really stuck out in your book and to me you know i've thought this is kind of a weird thought i'm gonna have to flesh out People have always told me on this podcast I use weird analogies or how do I retain so much? Whereas in college it was pre-med and as to quote Ram Dass, I got my PhD primarily out of fear. I was pre-med and I learned a lot. How'd you learn a lot? Primarily out of fear. 
since then I've learned out of love. Do I want to learn right next week? I'm having on a guy that used to work on a nuclear submarine in the cold war. Why? Because I want to today. I'm talking to Howard Bloom who worked with Michael Jackson. Why? Because I want to, what I have found is what the best picture I can get at life is that you have to be Sisyphus, but you have to be in love with what you do. Yeah. And then what you do is you find the way to, because you can find all the same lessons in life, whether it's quantum mechanics or whether it's right, what's working with Bob Marley or Ziggy Marley, you can find, right, the, the gods inside, you can find the same lessons, just right, right in middle school or in elementary school. I have two apples. I take away one. How many do I have? I have five watermelon. You give me four. What, what, are, what are we learning? Are we learning about apples and watermelon? No, we're learning about the patterns beneath them, so mathematics. To right. me, I the best the best I can conclude at this point in my life is that you are to find what you love at any given time and absorb it ferociously because you will absorb it and retain it more than you will out of fear. And then when you finish with that, you move to the next thing. And I want to have on a guy that's talking about like uh, Hitler had some weird like uh, heavy water plant that was perpetually perpetually in the snow. And to me, I don't, I don't care. I want to learn about that. Who knows where that's going to go and that's going to branch open in new things and new worlds. Right. And so I think the thing you're supposed to do is it's like you're a vacuum cleaner. And it's like find the thing that you want to suck up. Suck up as much as you can in your life. And then, like the watermelons or the apples, try to find the lessons, put the lessons into writing or to a podcast in hopes that someone else will pick it up. And maybe we are all, right, we're the Chinese civilization, we're the dancing flame. You just do the thing that you feel is right, try to extract the lesson, and then we keep standing on each other's shoulders. I have to get that out of the side. What I wanted to go into kind of on a complete 180 or tangential line is... I love what you said about anthropomorphism. And you 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 in, in the best way you made me question what was right under my nose. You're like, isn't it weird how anthropomorphizing thing is like an automatic like suicide in science? We just we all assume you anthropomorphized it, right? I find myself up until yesterday, I find myself still doing well, you know, you're anthropomorphizing, you know, a planet. That's not but then you you said you're like, why? Why is that so bad? Why is anthropomorphizing bad, right? If we're all if we're made up of all the stuff that's in the universe and we're an emergent property of 100 trillion cells over anywhere from 50 to 100 years, why is anthropomorphizing bad, right? We say what goes around comes around. Tommy, you treat Howard like shit, it's going to come back to you one day. You hold the door for someone and smile, it will come back to you one day. Well, I mean, what goes around comes around, right? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That's the most fundamental law of physics is the same thing, right? The golden rule, do unto others. So what you said about uh, what you said about galaxies being carnivorous, right? And local clusters or superclusters, and then the, even those turn into the filaments and the voids or whatever they are. The whole universe is anthropomorphized, or better yet, the whole universe is, and humans reflect the universe. And I know that was kind of a tangential point. I don't really have anywhere to jump off from that, but well, I really wanted to. It's not a tangential point, but basically, the book says what I say about anthropomorphism is that we got to watch out for anthropocentrism. Hmm. Um, we've got to watch out for taking it for granted that a given quality like will is unique to us. Um, why? Because we are made up of quarks, protons, electrons, and if they have will, then maybe we have will because they are our ancestors. They are alive within us at this very moment. 
And is this a willful universe? That's a good question. Um, because this universe did come out of a nothing and burped forth something absolutely impossible. Uh, an entire cosmos in a point, a pinprick smaller than a pinprick. Uh, and, but the universe started moving at enormous speed immediately. And then it precipitated those very first things, the quarks and leptons, almost instantly. This is a driven, motivated, ambitious cosmos that is constantly climbing a ladder of impossibility, constantly producing, burping forth the next supersized surprise. So is will uniquely human? Or do we have will because the particles of which we are made showed will from the very beginning? You know, those protons, remember the birth of those protons mm -hmm. from quarks? You are composed more protons than we have numbers for. Um, 100 trillion cells and gazillions of protons in every single one of those cells. So if you are, and when were those protons born, Tommy? I mean, let's go through a little exercise. Try putting your left finger through your right palm. Did it go through? No. No. Okay. So how are you less than 100 years old? Yes. Okay. Um, is the stuff that kept your finger from going through your palm you? Yes. Okay. Um, do you know how old that stuff is that kept your finger from going through your palm? Well, spoiler alert, I, I already know the ending, but... Right. To me, it's it's 31. It was built at, it came to ex, into existence at the first flick of the universe's existence at 3.7 billion years old. It has gone through every royal, every boil, every stew, every upheaval, every cataclysm this cosmos has ever produced. So who has will, Tommy? You and me? Or is there something willful about these ambitious particles that over the course of 13.7 billion years managed to erect a you and a me, an Aristotelian impossibility, something far, far bigger than one plus one equals two. One plus one equals a strange infinity. And um, so we are being anthropocentric when we say that this can't possibly be a driven cosmos, this can't possibly be a motivated cosmos, this can't possibly be an ambitious cosmos, because those are anthropomorphisms. You're forgetting what you are. You are 13.7 billion years of this cosmos existence. Some of those properties that you think are just unique to us human beings may well come from the ancestors who are alive inside of us making up even the hardness that keeps our finger from going through our palm. It, it kind of makes me think of uh, Alan Watts. You know, he's like, an apple tree apples, uh, a right. wave, an ocean waves. Right. The universe peoples. Right. It just blip. It just well, that's a very good way of putting it. That's an outstanding way of putting it. It's, well, that's to Alan Watts, but it's, it's, it's this momentary, or as the comedian Duncan Trussell says, he goes, I think... I think human life and human experience and like the infinity of the eternal universe is it's a dolphin jumping out of the water in the ocean and for no other reason than to jump up and just flip and do a cool little motion for a split second. But that's our hundred year life. And then you go right. back into infinity and then you jump up again. And that's all you're little do you're doing is just this tiny little expression. Right. It's, 
it's that we're just we're just peopling. We're just waving. We're these tiny little things. And it's again, it's right. I remember I was really interested in college uh, in the right the easy question and the hard question about consciousness. You know, the easy right. question is it's easy in the sense that going to the moon is easy. We can do the mathematics. We see how much rocket fuel it will take, and it's going to take this much investment. Right? We got to do it. Right? We got to do it by the end of this decade and all that good stuff. The hard question is, is, well, how does it equal consciousness, right? And back when I think the this analogy was made up, it was like the 1700s, so it kind of makes sense. I think it was somewhere, I don't know, where, somewhere where there's windmills. And it was like, if you go down into a, you know, if you could blow the your brain up to the size of a windmill, and you can go into the windmill, and you can see the wood and the gears, and you can see the stone walls. He goes, if you could blow up the brain to the size of the windmill, or in our case, if you could blow up the brain to the size of the earth, you can go around. We could... I mean, with enough time and enough money, we could understand, right, every cell, how it reproduces, how the proteins fold, just like we can build an iPhone. Like, we could, but nowhere in there does proteins and fat and electrical impulses and dendritic growth and, and glia and, and N-acetylcysteine and how many sodium ions you have at the synaptic cleft, synaptic cleft, nowhere in there does that create isness the experience of i am what the fuck is that and to me that is that is what your book is it's here's all the blueprints okay i got it got it got it got it got it but how the hell does all of that create this right and well that in essence is what the book is about the universe is creative the universe once upon a time invented the electron once upon a time it invented the atom and the galaxy and once upon a time it invented you and me um how the hell did it pull that off why is uh what how do we get beyond aristotelian thinking aristotelian thinking did us a lot of good for 2300 years but misses the main point the flame totally misses the existence of the fucking flame um, and now it's time to deal with the flame and take it seriously as a reality and try to understand it with the meager tools of our science. And where our tools are inadequate, it's time to expand them. It's time to radically reinvent them. And we have all kinds of tools waiting around us. Artificial intelligence mm-hmm. is one of those biggest tools of all. Um, and communicating with artificial intelligence. Because mm-hmm. once artificial intelligence understands a pattern well enough to predict it it still has the hard part ahead of us explaining what it has realized to us so we can understand what this pattern is that it's picked up on you know there are right now there are brain machine interfaces mm-hmm. that have learned how to know when you want to say the word right versus the word wrong um and but Try to get, we need to get that fucking machine to explain to us how it understood this, what the pattern is that it grokked, that it glommed onto. Um, We have to get our tools to talk to us because we have new tools. And once they can talk to us, we can probably take them a big step farther than the 1570 invention of the equation. You know what might be insane is is if we create AI to answer these questions... And all the AI does is go, well, I got to create another AI because that's the only way it'll. What if all this is is just kicking the can down the road? I thought you'd know. I thought you would know. It, it, right. se- it seems like it could go like that. Back to Ramdas, and I know I've got you for, for two more minutes, is 
you know, Ram Dass had, of all of his quotes, one of them I really loved was, uh, was we can never understand it all. The Godhead can never understand it in the same way that nothing can understand a system meta to it. In order, if, if the human brain was to, in order to understand the complexities of the human brain, it would have to be more complex than it is. Right. In which case we couldn't explain it and right. so on and so forth. Could that, do you think there's any, it, are, is it always just, are we trying to catch our own tails? Are we, or as Ram Dass or Alan Watts says, a flashlight can't illuminate itself. A knife can't cut itself. Your teeth can't bite themselves. Are we, are we chasing this forever? Are we always reaching for the next thing? And once we, you know, because once we learn more, we go, oh, we finally figured it out. It's uh, protons and neutrons. And it's like, well, now we know even less. It's, is that, right. are we just the universe playing with itself? And I don't mean that like. We're the universe admiring herself in a mirror. The universe is fine, constantly finding <laughs> new ways to sum herself up in different languages. <laughs> and approximately uh, 3.85 billion years ago, the universe came up with this brand new mirror with which to represent herself symbolically. It was the genome. Mm. And the genome had to accurately reflect the universe of which it was a part or the creatures that it helped construct would not survive. It's as simple as that. And the universe has been complexifying that genome ever since. But since then, it's added consciousness. It's added culture. It's added time binding so that Aristotle is alive in the conversation that you and I are having in 2021. Um, and with those tools, we have gone a big step further in helping the universe see herself in a mirror, helping her sum herself up in new languages um, that reflect her nature in new ways. And one of the things that's come out of this is a radically new landscape of human possibility that didn't exist in 1980. Um, and it's called cyberspace. And cyberspace is this vast landscape, all seemingly as big as the Earth itself, that we've just begun to explore. And we created it out of mirroring the cosmos in new ways, in new languages. And we're using cyberspace, and we are using Wolfram's computers to help the universe understand herself, translate herself into brand new terms, to admire herself in a mirror, to be the ultimate narcissist. Um, and it is a glory to be tapped by, by the universe to help her reflect herself in entirely new ways. But the big deal is every time you understand something new, if you step back, which most people don't, but if you are willing to step back, you see the new questions mm -hmm. it implies. And every time you advance human knowledge, you also expand the quality of the questions. Mm -hmm. So this book is about questions, the God problem. It's trying to open new questions in your mind and the mind of the scientific community. Whether it succeeds in that, we shall see. It succeeded with me. And, I, you know, I would I just trying to think. You're, you're right. So you're the moonwalking Stephen Hawking. But I think you've also, in your works and the fact that you're, you're still working, you, you can't stop working. And it's – I thought of this last week and I meant to email it to you. But I was trying to think uh, about, about – how, how what impact you've had on my life too much information I, I was taking a shit and having a beer and I was, I was i was sitting there and i was like how do i put this in the in the best way is and i said it earlier but not quite but the term i coined was it's sisyphusian bliss and right. it's you're gonna push the rock up the mountain forever 
find the find the rock and the mountain that you'd rather push the rock find the thing that you'd rather push this rock up this mountain than do anything else in life because then your fate your what you're what you're damned to do is just orgasmic you're the universe just right what did buddha say right before enlightenment chop wood carry water what did he say after enlightenment chop wood carry water that's what you have taught me is i'm 30 god willing I will never wake up a day in my life thinking, ah, I finally figured it out. I want to be on my deathbed going, I got no idea. Good luck, guys. <laughs> That's what I want. That's what I want. And well, it's, you've made some brilliant summaries. It's, it's absolutely terrific. I'm I'm very impressed. Well, thank, thank you, Mr. Bloom. And as you said at the end of our last episode, you know, what you want to do is yeah, at least do that for one person. And I can say you have. You sincerely have. And... Maybe no one else does. I doubt that's true. Maybe no one else does. You've done it for me. It's not 350 years later, as we're still alive at the same time. Right. Knock on wood. You've done that for me. You've you've made me feel less insane. And what you said, you know, you written, wrote about it and how I accidentally started the 60s. You know, none of the kids wanted to hang out with me. Dude, I think you're one of the coolest fucking guys I've ever talked to. And I've talked to someone that's walked on the moon. Okay? So that's, for oh. whatever that's worth... I think you're one of the coolest guys I've ever talked to in my life. I can't say the coolest because you've done different things. Charlie Duke walked on the moon. He didn't work with Michael Jackson. You worked with Michael Jackson. He didn't walk on the moon. So I can't give either of you the trophy. But my God, it, it, you touch a special place in my heart. You make me think. You make me. You make my mind go insane. You make me feel normal for not wanting to take days off. When I have a day off and I go... I guess today I should sit around and play video games and I'm 10 minutes into it. Ah, 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 and I'm 10 minutes into a Saturday playing video games and I'm like, and finally I pull up my phone and I'm like, I'm watching this documentary on like what the new, you know, the new James Webb telescope's doing. I don't give a shit. This is what I want to learn today. And it's, right. you make me feel normal. And maybe you're insane and I'm insane and we're just confirming each other's insanity. I'll take it. I'll take it. We're the universe uh -huh. admiring ourselves in the mirror. You know what? I don't give a shit. We're in a good red. We're in a good black dress. We look good. Fuck it. Admire it. Be okay with it. <laughs> Howard Bloom, I've kept you five minutes over. I can say from the bottom of my heart, I love you. You have touched something deep inside of me. You make me feel less crazy or at least being able to justify my own insanity. You make me feel more comfortable in my own skin. So with that that i can only say that with the with the deepest level of sincerity so thank you sir everyone go buy the book it will melt your brain you'll start seeing things in thermal and ir and i can't wait for the next book to have an even who knows what is the next what is the next spectra that i'm going that my, the sensor of my mind is going to be seeing in the next time we talk when i nail the next book down Thank you. Sir. All right. Well, have a wonderful time reading the next book. Thank you for affirming my existence. You do. <laughs> and I shall see you after you've read the next book. Yes, sir. And we're going to, for everybody listening, we're going through the entire works process. And who knows, man, maybe there's a pattern that emerges at the end of that. Who the fuck knows? Howard Bloom. Well, I'm, working, I'm working on the eighth book. I know you is, are. Yeah. The case of the sexual cosmos, everything you know about nature is wrong. And I'm on chapter 19, so I'm making good progress. Good. I, you gotta, I know you said you have two more books in you, or including this right. one. I want, I want you to start walking more, and I want you to start taking some fish oil, and make sure you take a multivitamin. <laughs> because I want, you to, I want you to be pushing 150 and still going popping out another book. That would be neat. 
I, All right, so I'll see you after the next book. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. God bless. Thank you so much, Howard Bloom. Stay safe, everybody. God bless. And thank you again for being Recording here, man. Recording stopped. You're a badass. Peace.